Saturday, September 14th, 1963. It's 11.30 p.m. and the small town of Bowmanville, Canada is fast asleep. The night is dark and the streets are eerily quiet, except for the headlights from passing cars and a few teenagers hurrying home to make their curfew. Among them is 12-year-old Joyce Greenlee. Having spent the evening with her friends, she's heading back to her family home on Maple Grove. Along the way, Joyce expects to meet her 13-year-old sister, Noreen. Noreen was also out with friends tonight, and the two sisters plan to meet at the bus stop near their house and walk the rest of their journey together. But when Joyce arrives, Noreen isn't there. She and her friends check their watches in confusion. Noreen's bus will have been and gone by now. Noreen should be waiting on the sidewalk as promised. Where is she? Due to the unseasonably cold air and the darkness of the night, Joyce and her friends don't hang around questioning Noreen's absence. They presume that she took an earlier bus home. Wrapping their coats tighter around them, the girls press on with their journey. Moments later, their vision is blinded by the bright glow of headlights. A car is speeding towards them on the sidewalk, the loud rumble of its engine grating against the girl's ears. Terrified, they dive out of the car's way as it misses them by inches. As it races off, a chilling sound wails from within. A young girl's scream. The blue car roars off west along Highway 2, and Joyce and her friends pick themselves up from the ground. Their hearts are racing and adrenaline is pumping through their veins as they realize they've just escaped with their lives. But Joyce doesn't feel the same relief as her friends. Her heart is still thumping in her chest, and shivers are tingling all through her body. Joyce recognized that scream. She's heard it countless times before when playing in the garden, running around the schoolyard, tearing through her house. It was the sound of her sister, 13-year-old Noreen Greenlee. But why was Noreen screaming in the back of a stranger's car? And where was the teenager taken? These questions will haunt Joyce Greenlee and her family for over 50 years, that is, until a dying man claims he knows the truth. His deathbed confession might finally provide the answer to the decades-long mystery. What really happened to Noreen Greenlee on September 14th, 1963? At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups. This show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Noreen Greenlee, a 13-year-old girl who vanished one fall night. It's about the small town that came together in an attempt to bring her home, and a crime that left behind no traces or clues. It's about an abduction that tore apart a once happy family. The deathbed confession from an anonymous man who claimed to have the answers. And a monumental excavation project that hoped to uncover the truth over 50 years later. 
I'm Estefania Haigman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. In 1963, Bowmanville is a small, friendly Canadian town. Located on Canada's east coast, it's over 60 miles away from the bustling streets of Toronto and feels a world apart from modern city life. Recently, the town has become the center of several sprawling businesses, notably General Motors and Goodyear Tires. Their offer of reliable employment coupled with Bowmanville's close-knit rural community makes it a popular destination for families. Among those who call Bowmanville home are the Greenleys. Nadine and Harvey Greenlee have seven children, ranging from toddlers to teenagers. Their third child is 13-year-old Noreen. She's a bright, talented girl who's popular with friends and works hard at school. Noreen has an array of hobbies and often appears in the local paper for her achievements. She takes part in sports such as basketball, horseback riding, and swimming, but also enjoys singing in the school choir. Despite being a teenager, Noreen isn't interested in boys or dating just yet. Instead, she prefers to spend time with her large family or work at the local gas station to earn money. Noreen's life is full of happiness, and it seems as though the young teen has a bright future ahead. However, This joyful world is about to be torn apart. It's minutes before midnight on Saturday, September 14th. In Maple Grove, a hush hangs over the neighborhood. The streets are dark and empty and the house is quiet and everyone sleeps peacefully through the night. But at the Greenlee home, panic is beginning to set in. Joyce has just returned and tearfully explained to her parents that Noreen failed to meet her at the bus stop. 
She also told them that she could have sworn she heard her big sister screaming from within the blue speeding car that nearly hit her and her friends. Harvey Greenlee, Joyce's father, doesn't waste a second. He wakes up one of his eldest sons, and together, they set off through the darkened streets of Bowmanville in search of Noreen. They keep their eyes peeled for a car matching Joyce's description, a shiny blue Ford Prefect with a metal grill at the front. Over the next few hours, Harvey Greenlee drives all around Bowmanville. He traces the roads near his house, visits neighbors and friends of Noreen, and even travels onto the highway. But he finds no sign of his daughter or the mysterious blue Ford Prefect. With every passing minute, the situation grows more worrying. It's getting harder to swallow the terrible thought that Noreen might have been kidnapped. But Harvey Greenlee's a rational man. He knows Bowmanville to be a safe and friendly town. The kind where neighbors look out for each other and children can stay out late playing together. He also trusts Noreen. Despite being just 13 years old, she's a sensible and mature girl. She regularly stays out late with her friends, organizes her own rides home, and walks the streets of Bowmanville alone. Harvey remembers that tonight. Noreen spent the evening with her best friend, Bonnie Wilkins. They plan to go bowling in town, grab dinner from a nearby restaurant, and catch the bus home before midnight. Their evening should have been an innocent and safe one. The town of Bowmanville is relatively small, and both girls know their way around. Surely it's unlikely that any harm has come to them. Eventually, after hours of searching, Harvey Greenlee admits defeat. When he returns home and Noreen still isn't there, Harvey realizes he hasn't yet contacted Bonnie Wilkins' family. What if Noreen stayed the night at Bonnie's house? Sure, it would have been irresponsible of her not to tell her parents, but at least she'd be safe. Knowing the Wilkins well, Harvey dials their telephone number and Bonnie picks up. In confusion, she explains to Harvey that Noreen isn't with her. The last she knew was that Noreen planned to take the bus home. She even watched her friend walk to the Kings Road bus stop. Bonnie's explanation is crushing. It banishes the last possible hope that Noreen might be somewhere safe. Now, there's no way of telling where she is or what's happened to her. After hanging up with Bonnie, Harvey Greenlee drives to the Bowmanville police station and reports Noreen as a missing person. Her whereabouts have been unknown for four hours, and considering the time of the night and Noreen's young age, police agree that the situation is worrying. They launch an investigation into her disappearance and assure Harvey that they'll do everything they can to find his daughter and bring her home. It's Sunday, September 15th, 1963, Noreen Greenlee has been missing for 12 hours. Rather than sitting at home and worrying, the Greenlees get to work. Nadine, Noreen's mother, spreads the news of her daughter's disappearance throughout the town. She telephones neighbors, speaks to Noreen's friends, and organizes a search party. At midday, around 70 people from Bowmanville meet at the Greenlees' home on Maple Grove. 
they plan the first of what will be numerous attempts to find Noreen. Throughout the afternoon, volunteers comb through every part of the town. They walk along quiet streets, check dark alleys and local parks, and visit spots Noreen was known to frequent. They even travel north up to Highway 2 and traipse through the wild brush area. But sadly, the volunteers fail to find anything. This disappointing result doesn't deter the Greenleys, though, and they remain focused on finding their daughter. The heartbroken parents swear they won't rest until they've brought her safely home. The next few days blur into one long search for Noreen Greenlee. Everyone in the town gets involved, and their efforts are exhaustive. On Monday, September 16th, Nadine's brother-in-law offers up the use of his private plane, while police authorize two aircrafts to scan the town from above. When this yields no results, the search party on the ground expands. On September 17th, around 400 individuals spend their day looking for Noreen. Hundreds of employees from General Motors, Duplate Glass, and Goodyear Tires join a team of high school students, Boy Scouts, and friends and family members of the missing teen. This time, their search is truly extensive. The volunteers not only trace every road, avenue, and boulevard in Bowmanville, but they also explore its surrounding areas. It lasts the entire day, and the final group doesn't return home until well after dark. Volunteers have picked up piles of lost property, from abandoned items of clothing to discarded toys and bicycles. But none of these belong to Noreen. After three days, the teenager is still missing without a trace. On September 20th, in a final, desperate bid to make a breakthrough on the case, police turn the town upside down. They release trained bloodhounds to follow Noreen's scent throughout Bowmanville and drain the ponds in local parks. The dogs pick up Noreen's scent from the Kings Road bus stop and follow it north for some time until they reach the railroad tracks. Then, just like Noreen, the trail vanishes into thin air. The drained ponds also prove to be useless. No sign of Noreen is recovered from the water. It's now been eight days since Noreen Greenlee disappeared, and over 1,000 volunteers have looked for her. Having searched the entire town, the Greenleys have to face the heart-wrenching possibility that their beloved daughter might not be coming home. And so, on Sunday, September 22nd, Harvey Greenlee calls off the search. Although he still holds out hope that his daughter is alive somewhere, he admits that nothing more can be done for the time being. However, the police investigation is still ongoing, and soon, an interesting piece of testimony will emerge. It might explain what happened to Noreen after she left Bonnie's house on the night of September 14th, 1963. Following the failed physical search for Noreen, police turn their attention to witness testimony. The first individual they interview is Noreen's best friend, Bonnie Wilkins. Bonnie spent the evening of September 14th with Noreen and is the last known person to have seen her. 
Despite the trauma of losing her best friend, the young teenager cooperates with police and details the events of the night. According to Bonnie, she and her new boyfriend, Gary Woolner, met up with Noreen on Saturday evening. The three friends walked together to Baseline Road, where they planned to go bowling at the popular location, Liberty Bowl. After a few hours, the three teens headed out to a local diner, Sam's Restaurant, for a bite to eat. Then, at around 11 p.m., they walked the short distance back to Bonnie's house on Waverly Road. So far, Bonnie's testimony gives police very little to worry about. Noreen has been accounted for for most of the evening. However, Bonnie then explains that when they arrived at her house, she was keen to spend some time alone with her boyfriend. Taking this as a cue to leave, Noreen said her goodbyes and headed out to the Kings Road bus stop. There was a regular bus running every hour from just outside Bonnie's house back to Noreen's family home on Maple Grove. The teenager planned to take the 11.35 p.m. westbound bus. But the evening was unseasonably cold, and Noreen didn't have a coat with her. So after waiting just a few minutes, she walked back to Bonnie's house. Bonnie offered her a long coat and promised she could keep it for the rest of the evening. But for some reason, Noreen refused. And at around 11.10 p.m., she left Bonnie's house again and waited under a streetlight at the bus stop. That was the last time Bonnie ever saw her best friend. Greed, revenge, lust. Murder investigations often pinpoint why someone has been killed, but not necessarily who did the killing. Every Tuesday on Unsolved Murders, meet the victims, suspects, and investigators of the most notorious criminal cases in history. Part traumatic podcast, part old-time radio show, Unsolved Murders transports you to the scene of a crime, its ensuing investigation, and every attempt to solve the case. You'll soon discover that the murder isn't always the most shocking part of the story. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Next, police speak to the bus driver who was due to take Noreen home the night she disappeared. When police inform him that Noreen was waiting for his bus at Kings Road, he's surprised. The driver claims that no one was at the bus stop when he drove past, and the sidewalk was completely empty. This means that Noreen disappeared sometime after saying goodbye to Bonnie at 11.10 p.m., and before the bus arrived at 11.35. While collecting testimony, investigators briefly speak with 12-year-old Joyce Greenlee. She recalls the strange events from the night of Noreen's disappearance how her sister failed to meet her at the bus stop, the speeding blue car that almost hit her and her friends, and the screams she recognized from within. Police politely listen to everything Joyce tells them. It's an interesting story, but they don't think it's credible. 
Although Joyce swears she heard her sister from the car, she never actually saw her. As a result, police are reluctant to take the claim seriously and choose not to publicize her testimony. However, their doubts about Joyce's credibility instantly change when a local man named William Polly comes forward. Polly explains that at around 11.10 p.m. on September 14th, he drove past Noreen Greenlee. He was dropping his elderly mother off at her home on Waverly Road and saw Noreen waiting alone at the bus stop. After seeing his mother safely inside, Polly turned the car around at 11.15 and headed back in the direction he'd come from. However, as he approached the bus stop where Noreen had been waiting just minutes earlier, he noticed that it was empty. Noreen was hurrying across the road towards another car, a small, dark blue Ford Prefect. The car was a model very rarely seen around Bowmanville, and Polly watched it with curiosity. As he drove slowly past, he saw Noreen open the passenger door and climb inside. Then, the car sped off in the direction of Maple Grove. The only detail he can remember about the driver is that it was a man wearing a black hat. This testimony from Polly is potentially groundbreaking. It almost certainly concludes that Noreen was abducted by whoever drove the Ford Prefect. It also supports Joyce's story. If Noreen got into the car before 11.30 p.m. and headed towards Maple Grove, it's probable that it was her scream Joyce heard. But although Polly's testimony is helpful, it still leaves questions unanswered. Who was the man in the black hat? And where did the Ford Prefect disappear? It's now October, 1963. Noreen Greenlee has been missing for one month. Although the physical search has been paused, the Greenleys continue to spread awareness about their missing daughter. They regularly update the local papers with news on her disappearance, display their telephone number on advertisements and posters, and follow any tip they hear, no matter how small. The mayor of Bowmanville even steps in to help. He offers a reward of $1,000 to anyone who can find a sign of Noreen. But tragically, just like every other attempt, these efforts yield no results. In November, 1963, a tipster contacts the Greenleys claiming to have seen Noreen in Calgary. They reportedly caught a glimpse of her in the wealthy Calgary neighborhood, Mount Royal, where she was acting as a domestic worker. The tipster suggests that she may have dyed her hair black and is now living alone in a small apartment in the center of the town. After hearing this, investigators and the Greenleys travel over 1,000 miles west to Calgary, where they spend days trawling through restaurants, houses, and parks in the Mount Royal area. But although their search is thorough, no one finds Noreen. It's possible that her captor has moved her to a different city after discovering that police were on his tail. But perhaps more likely, Noreen was never even in Calgary. The tipster may have seen a girl who looked similar and misidentified her as the missing teen. By the end of November, the Greenleys have left Calgary and returned to Bowmanville. 
They try to get on with their normal life, but it's impossible. They're constantly surrounded by memories of Noreen and the cruel reminder that she's still missing. As fall freezes into winter and the holidays creep closer, Nadine buys Christmas presents for all of her seven children, including Noreen. She wraps Noreen's gifts up and places them under the tree, as though expecting her to walk through their front door on Christmas Day. Even at the dinner table, Nadine continues to set a place for her missing daughter. But this unfounded hope can't last forever. With no new leads or evidence as to Noreen's whereabouts, the possibility that she's still alive is becoming increasingly slim. The Greenleys are, of course, aware of this. And as their nightmare continues to drag on, the family starts to crumble. In the months after her disappearance, Harvey Greenlee continues to throw everything he has into finding Noreen. He devotes each day of his life to searching for his lost daughter, praying that he'll bring her home. Nadine Greenlee, on the other hand, finds the loss too difficult to cope with. Overcome by grief, she grows dependent on alcohol. The years continue to roll by, each anniversary bringing a painful reminder of Noreen's absence and no new evidence or lead to follow. Sadly, Harvey passes away from a stress-induced aneurysm without ever finding his daughter. Unable to raise them alone, Nadine's six remaining children are taken away from her and placed in the care of social services. They're split up from one another and sent to live with different families. Despite this hardship, each child promises their mother that they'll never stop looking for Noreen. And even as the years melt away into decades, the Greenleys keep this promise. It's now 2016. 53 years have passed since Noreen Greenlee disappeared, and life for her family has changed drastically. Both Harvey and Nadine have passed away. Noreen's siblings have grown up, married, and now have children of their own. But they've never forgotten their sister. They've continued their parents' mission, collecting archives about Noreen, distributing their telephone numbers, updating a blog with information, and maintaining contact with Bowmanville detectives. Now, after five decades of waiting, their efforts are about to pay off. In mid-2016, one of the Greenleys, it's not clear who, receives an alarming phone call. The call is from a middle-aged man who chooses not to disclose his identity. The only personal information he reveals is that he grew up in Bowmanville. The anonymous caller has an unbelievable story to tell, one which might just give the Greenleys the answers they've spent their lives searching for. He claims to know exactly what happened to Noreen Greenlee. The anonymous caller begins his story by describing his late father. He was a construction worker from Bowmanville who helped reroute Highway 57 during the 1960s. He was also a part-time bus driver for Maple Grove Public School, the very same school that Noreen attended. But the caller's father harbored a horrifying secret, 
a truth so dark and shameful that he could only bring himself to speak it out loud on his deathbed. In 1963, he murdered a teenage girl in Bowmanville. According to his father's dying words, he offered Noreen a lift home on the night of September 14th. Perhaps recognizing him from school, she willingly accepted and climbed into his car. The caller mentions that the car was a blue Ford Prefect, the very same make and model that Noreen's abductor is believed to have driven. He goes on to say that after driving a short distance in the direction of Noreen's home, his father beat her to death. Then he hid her body in the trunk of his car. He doesn't give an explanation for his abhorrent crime. The man then waited an entire day before disposing of her remains. And when he did, he made sure no one would ever find her. On Monday, 16th of September, 1963, while the entire town of Bowmanville was consumed in the frantic search for Noreen, he drove to work in his Ford Prefect. At this time, William Polly hadn't yet come forward with details of the Ford Prefect he'd seen, so no one was on the lookout for the suspicious car. While at the construction site, the man complained to colleagues that he was fed up with his unreliable cheap car and wanted to dispose of it there and then. So perhaps waiting until he was the only one left at work, he dug a hole somewhere between six and 10 feet deep and drove the car down inside. Then, using a bulldozer, he buried it out of sight. Noreen's body was left in its trunk. This unexpected deathbed confession is a difficult pill for the Greenleys to swallow. On the one hand, there's no evidence to prove the man's claims. They don't know who he or his father are. And if they believe his story, they'll have to accept the awful truth that Noreen really is dead. However, there are a few details which nag at the Greenleys and suggest the confession might be true. Firstly, Highway 57 was being reconstructed at the time of Noreen's disappearance. During the 1960s, it was fairly common to bury unwanted materials in construction sites. So it's certainly possible that a car was hidden underneath the highway. What's more, the rerouting of Highway 57 is a very specific detail to include. It seems unlikely that he'd have bothered mentioning it at all if he or his father hadn't worked there. Secondly, the alleged killer's position as a part-time school bus driver explains why Noreen may have willingly gotten to his car. She'd have recognized him and felt safe in his company. And of course, there's the fact that the dying man claimed to have driven a blue Ford Prefect. Although this information has been public knowledge since 1963, the Greenleys believe that it adds credibility to the caller's story. Armed with the anonymous man's deathbed confession, the Greenleys contact the Cold Case Society. Based at the University of Western Ontario, the Society is a student-led think tank which independently reviews unsolved disappearances and homicides. After hearing the Greenlee story, 
the Cold Case Society puts them in touch with one of their forensic anthropologists, Renee Willman. She agrees to survey the area of the old construction site. Just months after receiving the tip, the Cold Case Society gets to work. Forensic anthropologist Renee Willman leads her team to Highway 57 in Bowmanville. Today, they're embarking on a geophysical survey of the area specified in the anonymous man's deathbed confession. They hope that they'll be able to find a trace of Noreen's body or the Ford Prefect, which is allegedly buried 10 feet underground. A geophysical survey is an archeological method which allows researchers to see beneath the soil. Using metal detection instruments known as magnetometers, archaeologists are able to generate subterranean images. Magnetometers are far more powerful than ordinary metal detectors, as they can locate metallic objects from over 30 feet away. They'll be able to show if a car is hidden here. Wilman and her team spend a week surveying the site. After several days, they make a discovery. The magnetometer shows that in one place, the soil has been significantly disturbed and the surrounding magnetic field is high. This means that there's potentially a large metal object buried here. Could it be the Ford Prefect? However, Wilman and her team are unable to provide any more detail. Their survey was one-dimensional, meaning it's unable to yield key data, such as the object's size or how deep it's buried there's no way of telling what exactly triggered the disturbance in the soil. But even so, Wilman believes they've made a significant breakthrough. She recommends that police get involved immediately and perform a second survey of the site. If they use ground-penetrating radar, they'll be able to gauge a clearer result and determine whether a full excavation is necessary. Frustratingly, though, Durham Regional Police are less than enthusiastic. After hearing about the anonymous confession, they trace the call and locate the man. Police allegedly speak with him and hear a surprisingly different story to the one he told the Greenleys. This time, the man backtracks and says he doesn't believe his father murdered Noreen. However, he does claim that his father buried a car in the construction site while rerouting Highway 57. There are a myriad of reasons why the man's story has suddenly changed. It's possible that he got cold feet about repeating the confession in front of police, perhaps worried it would damage his father's legacy or even get him in trouble with the law. Whatever the reason, it casts doubt on the deathbed confession and makes police reluctant to further investigate the tip. However, the Greenleys have waited over five decades for a breakthrough and they're not going to let this one drop easily. So along with Renee Woolman, they implore Durham police to survey the area. They explain just how promising Woolman's findings are and emphasize the possibility that a car really could be buried under the highway. If police excavate the area, there's a chance that they'll solve a 53-year-old murder investigation. It's October, 2018. Two years have passed since the Greenleys received the deathbed confession and Renee Willman found suspicious anomalies buried in the ground. 
Durham County Regional Police have finally agreed to excavate the site. They were perhaps tempted by Wilman's results or maybe keen to finally put the theory of the buried car to bed. However, for some reason, police choose to ignore Wilman's advice of using ground-penetrating radar to survey the area. Instead, they decide to plunge straight into a full excavation. And so, on October 18th, almost exactly 55 years after Noreen Greenlee disappeared, police begin the dig. Highway 57 is lined with police cars, news reporters, and hopeful friends and family members of Noreen Greenlee. They watch in suspense as the team gets to work. On a small patch of private land near to Regional Road and not far from the busy highway itself, police have dug two long trenches deep into the ground, measuring approximately 150 feet in length and seven feet deep. It was on these coordinates where Wilman's team identified the suspicious change in magnetic field. With the aid of metal detectors, they trudged through the muddy trenches, scanning every inch of soil around them. Hours pass and the excavation team continues to pace up and down the tunnels. 67-year-old Joyce Greenlee waits nervously on the bank nearby, surrounded by her family. She prays her sister's body will be discovered. But sadly, the metal detectors haven't revealed any signs of a car just yet. Durham police continue to search late into the day as the sun begins to fall and dusk settles on the highway. Everyone is desperately hoping there'll be a sign of the mysterious Ford Prefect. But eventually, the excavation grinds to a disappointing halt. Police find no evidence of anything buried in the ground. Whatever caused the change in magnetic field on Wilman's results, police can't find it. And considering the size of a car, it's likely they'd have stumbled upon it if it really had been buried there. It seems as though, once again, the efforts to find Noreen Greenlee have failed. It's an exasperating result for her family. However, Noreen's story doesn't end there. Despite the disappointing outcome of the excavation, the Greenleys remain convinced that she's buried in or near Highway 57. They don't think that the police excavation went far enough, and they're not alone in these doubts. Renee Woolman is also critical of the dig. She claims that when they dug the two trenches, Durham police failed to line up with the areas she's identified as points of interest. For some reason, they bypassed her coordinates and focused their search on a different portion of the land. Wilman also criticizes the fact that police plunged straight into the excavation and neglected to use ground-penetrating radar to survey the site. If they had performed a detailed survey before beginning the dig, they'd have had a more accurate area to search. This accuracy would have given police a far higher chance of discovering what caused the change in magnetic field. Wilman has outlined these concerns to the Durham police, but nothing more has been done. They perhaps disagree with her criticisms or consider the case too old to spend more resources on. However, the flaws of the excavation do provide a glimmer of hope. Is it possible that police stood right next to Noreen's buried body and missed it by mere feet? 
Following the excavation in 2018, the Greenleys have become frustrated with police who haven't followed any new leads or made a single breakthrough on the case. So now, the family wants to take matters into their own hands. The Greenleys have requested a copy of Noreen's case file. They suspect that Durham police aren't searching for her anymore and want to hire a private investigator. However, police refuse to share the file as it's still technically an open investigation. But the Greenleys don't let this deter them. They continue to spread awareness about Noreen, clinging onto the hope that someone somewhere must know what happened. Recently, they organized a walk in Bowmanville to remember Noreen. 100 men and women met at Baseline Road, the site where the old Liberty Bowl once stood. It was here where Noreen spent her final evening with Bonnie Wilkins and Gary Woolner. From Baseline Road, they traced the steps Noreen took all those years ago, walking to where Sam's restaurant used to be, past Bonnie's old house on Waverly Road, and finally finishing at the King's Road bus stop, the last place Noreen was ever seen. The Greenleys have also created a website in her memory called Bring Noreen Home. It includes original witness testimony from 1963, old newspaper photos of the teenager, reports from the time of her disappearance, and any information they think might be useful. Over 50 years since Noreen disappeared, the Greenleys still pray that someone knows where she is. They hope that if they continue to follow each lead, publicize her story and raise awareness, one day, Noreen Greenlee might finally come home. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Belle Gunnis, a woman whose life was plagued by tragedy. Disastrous events seemed to follow Belle wherever she went, targeting her homes, her family, and anyone who crossed her path. When in 1908, a fire burned her house to the ground, everyone believed that was the end of Belle's sad life, but they were wrong. On his deathbed, just one year later, her ex-boyfriend confessed that Belle was still alive. Not only had she survived the deadly fire, but she had also lived with a dark secret. The elderly widow was a serial killer and was still out there somewhere. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Lack of evidence, poor police work, clever criminals. Whatever the reason, some murders remain unsolved. Every Tuesday, Unsolved Murders explores the facts of a real-life cold case. Part dramatic podcast, part old-time radio show. 
Join the ensemble cast of actors as they take you on an exhilarating journey through the crime scene and its ensuing investigation. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify.